Hello, my fanist friends. Welcome to my podcast feed. Powered by ACAS Plus, here's a joke from my son. What did the bum say to the other bum? That's a bummer. You know, not for everyone. Uh, so, uh, look, thanks to everyone who's come to see the previews of Can I Have My Ball Back. It's been going really, really well, and uh, I'm really pleased with how the show's turning out. It's officially on tour now from Wednesday. I'll be at the Leicester Square Theatre. A couple of tickets left. Lots of press coming to that one. It'd be lovely to sell out, but there are a few other London gigs not selling as well. So if you're going to come to London... Maybe look up those other London gigs. And then this week I'll be in St Albans on Thursday, Gloucester on Friday, Chorley on Saturday, which is sold out. You can join the waiting list. And Glasgow on Sunday, two shows. I think the earlier show is sold out. Check with the venue, but the later show has some availability. Come along if you can. If you enjoy these podcasts and like them being free, then the great way to pay me back is to buy a ticket to a show or buy a download or a book from gofasterstripe.com. But you can just keep listening for free as well. That pays me back also. So, you know, no no pressure. But I'd love to see you there. If you just know me from the podcast and don't know me as a stand-up, I'm pretty good as a stand-up. It's a good show. I think you're going to enjoy it. It's only made about seven men faint so far. So, you know, are you brave enough to take the challenge? Let's sit back, relax and enjoy whichever podcast you're listening to now. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, welcome to another book club. I'm delighted to be joined by Rebecca Rag Sykes, who's written a little while ago actually a fantastic that I've only just come across a fantastic book called Kindred Neanderthal Life Love Death and Art hello Rebecca how are you doing hello I'm great thank you for having me it's my pleasure so um tell us a little bit about who you are for anyone who's unaware of you as a academic (laughs) um well I mean I'm not quite sure I'm technically an academic Uh, oh I think you are Um, uh well I mean I, I have an honorary fellowship at the University of Liverpool, so I'm an archaeologist um, okay. and I'm part of the archaeology department there. But I'm actually sort of more like a, a writer um, and an author, although I still, you know, I work on archaeological material, but I don't excavate things right now. Okay. <laughs> I'm out of the <laughs> trench. <laughs> Which is probably quite good. I did a bit of archaeology uh, many years ago when I was 18. I did a, two or three digs. Oh, did uh, you? I, yeah. So, in fact, one of them was uh, was Neolithic, I think it was, which I found uh, 
very confusing at the time, how, which which we'll get onto with your book. But how you that's tell, quite common with the Neolithic. How you tell a piece of flint that's been worked from a piece of flint that isn't worked, which we will get onto because there's there's a lot about that in your book. So anyway, tell us about how I mean I know this book took you eight years or something of work and research, uh, and it's a very all-encompassing. I have to say, it's a brilliant book. It's um. Uh, it's a reappraisal of what people would imagine Neanderthals are like. But w- why did you want to write this book, and how did this book come about, and what were you attempting to achieve? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it. I, it was three years of actual writing, but yes, mm. um, sort of overall, it represents um, a fair bit more in terms of um, study and assimilation of stuff. So yes, I I do have an acad- academic background. So my PhD was in the Neanderthals uh, of Britain, the late Neanderthals of Britain. So for, for us, late is sort of 50,000 years ago. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so I'm a stone tool specialist in terms of my training in, in that way. Um, but, you know, like like a lot of people in science and research and academia, um, after your PhD, it's not always easy to just slide into a nice lectureship or professorship. <laughs> it's a little bit um, harder than that uh, these days. Um, so I kind of um, was working on various projects and then I was very lucky and got a postdoctoral fellowship uh, in France. Um, so I was there for a few years. But when that finished, which was ooh, like the end of 2015, I applied for more things and I didn't get any future like funding or or more grants and things, but I had already had um, contact with a publisher um, via social media on Twitter. Everything happens on (laughs) Twitter. Um, And they were interested in me writing actually about humanity and birds in prehistory because I quite like bird watching (laughs) um but for various reasons that book didn't um didn't happen but they also wanted me to write about Neanderthals because that's actually you know my area of of expertise archaeologically um so when my postdoc finished um I stayed in France for a little bit and I just started writing the book although I was really intimidated to do that because it's a very big topic and yeah weirdly it being closer to my academic sort of area of knowledge it it felt harder and scarier to write I'm not quite sure why um maybe because I was worried what my colleagues might think (laughs) (laughs) um and also because I knew that this was actually going to be um what I was hoping it to be a book that was a little bit different about Neanderthals and was kind of focused very much on what we can say archaeologically, um, but also, you know, use the the science as a jumping off point to connect people actually with that deep past and do that with a little bit of imagination. Yeah, it, it's it, it's an amazing book in that in the in, in what it brings together because it is such a, you know spiraling huge subject itself, but you also <laughs> talk about the history of of you know our discovery of Neanderthals and 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 where it made right and wrong turns there, um, as well as sort of the the sort of the technical aspects of the archaeology. Because I sort of was under the impression we didn't really know all that much about Neanderthals. Uh-huh. But, but this book, very, it's, it's sort of incredible the, the depth they can go to. But before we get uh, into that, um, do you want to tell us a little bit about how long we've known there are Neanderthals and how and how that and how we how we sort of recognize them as a as a different species of hominid 
Yeah, I mean, I think this this actually connects really well to what you just said. Um, you know, the reason why I can write a gigantic um, book about Neanderthals and kind of talk about all these different aspects of their lives, um, you know, from birth to death and all different facets of their existence is because we have known about Neanderthals for quite a while um, compared to other hominin species, so sort of extinct human relations. Um, Neanderthals are the first of those hominin species that we actually realised existed. Um, mm. And this happened in the middle of the 19th century. Um, just as archaeology itself was kind of beginning to, you know, be become a discipline um, rather than just a hobby for rich people. Um, you know, in that way, Neanderthals have been there from the the emergence of prehistory as, as a science itself. Um, so we have had a very long time to get to know them. Um, but also there's just there's a huge amount of material um, that we have from Neanderthals. So obviously you have to begin with with a first find. Um, and it took a little while in the 19th century for um, discoveries to sort of mount up. But, you know, today we've got thousands of pieces of, of bone um, and um, probably representing a couple of hundred individual Neanderthals at least. Um you know, so those individuals we can we can know things about, um, but then we got literally millions of the objects that they made, stone tools. Um, but yeah, like if you go back to the nineteenth century, um, the the arrival of Neanderthals was, um, you know, I said it's a little bit like buses. Um, you know, we didn't really know much about prehistory for centuries. You know, it was the odd fossil find, but people didn't really know what these weird things were. You've got Mary Anning in the early 19th century, finding what, you know, they were calling sea lizards and things like this, um, you know, which were actually, you know, um, marine reptiles, ichthyosaurs, uh, plesiosaurs and things like that. But it wasn't long after that the first hominin discoveries began. Um, but we don't really have a, a clear picture of the understanding at that time because the people themselves didn't really know what they were finding sure. um so we've got two discoveries of neanderthals um in the early decades of the 19th century but neither of those were recognized as anything particularly out of the ordinary um and then it took until 1856 when we have the finding from the Neanderthal, so the neander valley in germany which gives us that species name um, and that was the one where um, it was realised that this was something out of the ordinary and a different kind of human. So mm. it's kind of nothing in in our understanding of deep prehistory for for so long, and then three of these come along at once in right. you know a few decades in the Victorian <laughs> times. Uh, I quite like the, the bit early in the book where you do, you discuss the the obviously they're named after the Neander Valley, but the Neander Valley is named after. A, a guy right so it's yeah. so it's named after a person which is you know it's nice to get a valley named after you but then accidentally he <laughs> neander ends, yeah, with, yeah. ends up with this uh, species of humanity named after him which might not be seen as the greatest compliment but maybe it is but it, it is a very interesting story yeah i mean it's a weird it's one of those weird sort of serendipitous moments um in the history of science you know because i mean a lot of how we know what we know about the world comes from 
you know chance and serendipity and things like this but in this case I, it's especially satisfying because um yeah so the neanderthal um tal being german for valley um was named after um a composer from the 1600s called um, Joachim neander and he wrote a lot of religious music and um was very celebrated um and that's kind of nice in itself but the the funny <laughs> bit is the fact that his name uh neander um was a sort of a classicization in this fashion of the time to kind of change your name to sound a bit more classical um and the original name was uh, neumann but both of those mean new man yeah so the very first place that we recognized that there had been other forms of humanity on the earth is from the valley of the new man yeah. <laughs> so you, you couldn't get a more perfect kind of um place you know i don't think that happens very often <laughs> it's very good and also just you know obviously he doesn't know uh, but it's no. it's a weird <laughs> thing to think that in four or five hundred years time you go oh yeah no, there'll be a species of man named after you incidentally uh but uh, named after a place that's i think named it after would you. have it would have blown his mind, I'm sure. You know, I think you know. You know, I'm, I hope he'd have been really annoyed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm not sure how you'd feel about it. But it's interesting. Um, but the the um, the book, as well as being about, I mean, about about uh, Neanderthals, which is incredibly interesting. But it's it's sort of about the triumph of archaeology because it's even to me, and I'm interested in archaeology, and I maybe I haven't kept up with things quite as much, but the the technicality of what you can discover from such tiny and weird things now and, uh, you know, and microanalysis of soil. I mean, there's stuff we you talk about um, the smoke coming from um, fires, you know, leaving traces on cave walls and that kind of thing that gives us stuff that we can, I mean, you know, it, it, as an archaeologist, I think most archaeologists are out there obviously trying to find the Holy Grail. That's the, that's the holy. <laughs> that's literally the holy grail of archaeology. But but there's but the archaeology has this you know sweeping sort of technical side where you're able mm. to find out so much just from the soil, the the, the analysis of teeth, which I was talking to Brenda Hassett about, which was very interesting. But uh, yeah, do you want to tell us a bit about about the archaeological <laughs> techniques that allow us to know so much about the? Yeah, I mean, this is the thing, you know, like Indiana Jones, he just basically goes through and trashes all the good stuff. You know, we <laughs> we want the, we want the soil samples, <laughs> we don't want the gold. But you know, I mean, yeah, that's that's kind of why, um, you know, why it is possible to discuss really quite intimate aspects of Neanderthals lives um you know what did they literally what did they eat because we can find tiny little fragments of starches in the grot that that sort of accumulates on their teeth and which our dental hygienists get rid of <laughs> so future <laughs> archaeologists will be upset about that um but you know things like that um it's 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 all come from a revolution in archaeological science really over the past 40 to 50 years um, there is just a bewildering array, actually, of different methods for squeezing out every kind of data that you can imagine from the yeah. stuff that we that we find. Um, so, you know, traditionally, um, people were basically digging up from Neanderthal sites. You would get bones or stones. <laughs> um, that was kind of it. You might be really lucky and get a preserved bit of wood. Um, but now what we've realized is that there is a ton of information, um, 
within material that was being thrown out so sediments um but also on the objects that we were always finding so on stone tools for example you know if brenna's talked about the teeth i won't i won't go into the detail <laughs> with that people will have to listen to her episode um but yeah i mean there's so much you can do with teeth it's, it's mad um but also with stone tools so you know if you go back to um, I don't know, like the 1930s, 1940s, um, what people really interested in with stone tools then was kind of just the shape of them. Um, and there was an attempt to sort of arrange all the different sort of objects that we find from archaeological sites and classify that in order to compare different layers within sites and to compare sites themselves um for evidence of you know what are Neanderthals doing how do we how do we understand why there are different types of tools in their sites but that's like a really basic thing it's basically like the the morphometrics of of those objects but in a really um sort of limited way that they were studied um whereas today um kind of two things happened one is that we understand that rather than the shape of the tools um, the way that they were made is actually really informative about how Neanderthals thought. Um, but to do, to understand how Neanderthal technology of what we call lithics, which is just stone tools, basically stone artifacts, um, lithic technology um, to know that you need to have the full array of material that's left behind as well as the actual tools that are being used, because you can essentially fit it all back together. Um, and that's what people for decades were throwing out from yeah. their sites. They were only keeping the nice bits, like, oh, a lovely scraper, we'll keep that. <laughs> um, but we get rid of all the little flakes um, that were, you know, made during that manufacturing process um, and that people assumed were just waste. Um, now we understand that, A, you can refit stuff back together and literally watch the sequence of decisions that individual Neanderthals made as they tackled one block of stone. Um, and I should say they had many different ways of doing this. They were exceptional artisans with rock. Um, they understood all different kinds of stone, ways to manipulate it. Um, they had very clear end products in mind. They made more than one kind of, um, of tool. Um, so we can see them making those decisions, making choices. You know, if you have a lump of rock with a with a you know a floor in it, a crack, um, as they meet that while they're taking that stone apart, what do they do? You know, how do they manage that? So we can see all of this just by refitting these things. Um, and so that forces that realization means that we kind of do slow archaeology today. Um, yeah. You know, we don't sort of just go in and and hammer out all the stuff and, and empty sites and chuck things. It's very meticulous. So excavation of sites now takes a long time <laughs> but what we can get out of it is very good so you've got the refitting but then also we've realized that you can do a lot with individual objects um so for example one of the things that has changed in our understanding is that we can see um individual objects were being resharpened um so they didn't just kind of make a tool use it and chuck it sometimes they did actually they had some disposable um tech methods that they were quite consciously using in a disposable way but in other times and places it made sense for them to keep their tools and they resharpen those and you can actually see the sequences of that happening um but we can also then look for distinctive like polishing that you get um, accumulating on the surface of a stone tool 
based on what you've used it to cut or chop or scrape. So we can start to see the individual histories of tools as they are used for different purposes and then resharpened and then used again. Um, sometimes we can get actual residues of materials themselves that, that they were using um, to process. So again, starches, um, things like this. So there's all these different aspects of, of what we can do just with stone tools now. Yeah, I mean, it just seems a lot of it just seems impossible. I mean, impossibly boring uh, for the people do, for the people doing it, I and mean, quite impossibly fastidious, you know. And and working out how long uh, a family might have stayed in a particular cave based on the soot residue—is it basically is that what we're talking about? The soot residue on the yeah, it's so a bit more complicated an- than that. Well, no, I mean, this is another um, sort of recent method. You know, there's all sorts of things. You know, we've got various different archaeological science um, methods. We can look at chemicals in bones and teeth. We can obviously do paleogenomics, a huge area of research. But another one that's um, just recently been um, developed is um, a realisation that in some places inside caves where you have um, an accumulation of calcite deposits that naturally form on the walls of the cave over time you know that's what makes um, stalagmites or stalactites that same uh, process of, of deposition um in some sites it's been uh, demonstrated that as people are living in those places and they make a fire and some of the fire is billowing around inside the chamber um it leaves a very thin tiny layer of soot on the surface of these calcite deposits which and then when the people leave and nobody's in the cave the calcite continues forming but there's no soot there and so what you end up with is kind of like an archive of the presence of people and their absence and if you were if you've kind of maybe some people listening to this remember um you know the wonder that is time team and sometimes (laughs) they were talking about you know it don't you i do (laughs) um dendrochronology um it's a similar thing with tree rings if you want to find out how old something is with tree rings, you take sections and you kind of have to fit them together. It's like cross-referencing. They've done a similar thing with these soot residues. Um, yeah, they can look a bit like barcodes. You know, you get a sequence of, of all these layers building up. And if you cross-reference those and try and match them, that allows you to essentially make an argument for how many occupations there are within yeah. each individual layer which sounds really like a very nitpicking thing to care about, but it is really important for us as archaeologists because when you dig very, very ancient sites, when we're talking about with Neanderthals, you might have a layer, so one layer that is distinctive because the colour of the sediment is different from the one above and below, but how much time is represented by that layer? That's a really important question for us because it means you know, there's a temporal element to the artifacts in that layer and we need to know that you know is it 10 years of occupations or are you looking at a thousand years of time and mm. if that's the case that's going to change how we interpret the material we find in that layer um, and so this method of um i think it's called fulginochronology chronology allows us um to get a handle in some places on how many people how many times people actually lived there and therefore you know how that relates to how many stone tools we find within that layer and the character of them and things like this so that kind of thing yeah i mean you know (laughs) you say all of this kind of has boring elements to it and i i do agree with you um because it's a it's a bit like all science you know there are 
long periods where it's quite dull even while digging you know you can you kind of have to go in like a zen mode in your brain and just partially tune your mind out while you're working but not you know so you don't pay attention to what you're doing but you you know you don't get ex- excited by every fragment of soil that you dig up um and it's like that with all the kind of work we do when we are dealing with really what is um the way we we excavate and and analyze today we have very very large um databases of of um objects to deal with so you have to you know you excavate your layer maybe a layer i don't know 20 centimeters thick if you have a really rich neanderthal site that one layer of 20 centimetres thick um, from, I don't know, a rock shelter, um, you might be looking at 40,000 fragments of bone, 20,000 stone objects. And all of those have to be individually um, catalogued, put into a database, um, measured or, or studied in some way. And then, you know, we have to pull out of that the stuff we really want to know, which is how were how were Neanderthals living? What were their lives like? Um, so there is there is a lot of kind of keyboard bashing and you know stuff like this that goes on um, in terms of wrangling all of that information, but it's worth it for what we can actually say about past lives. Yeah, well, given you know. Given, given that most of the stuff that we're talking about has disintegrated or more or less disappeared, you know, this book really gives, you know, you extrapolate that information uh, logically and academically and, and but do create, a, 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 you know, a vivid understanding of what the world might have been like, very possibly was like. I mean, you, you know, it claim, the cover claims that it's going to be the antle of life, love, death and art, <laughs> which is, is hard to believe given what we given what you're talking about that some soil or some chips of uh a flint can can tell you about how neanderthals loved each other but uh, do you want to tell us about your favorite examples of uh of what we know about i mean i'm, I'm obviously inter- i'm always interested in uh sex so um <laughs> we, we know that neanderthals and homo sapiens at some point got together because there's bits of neanderthal uh, inside most of us, uh, so we we do, we know that. But what what do we know about uh, Neanderthal love? Let's say, what's your favourite oh. thing from that? Well, I mean, there's oh, there's so much that you can kind of um, discuss in terms of the details of how they lived. You know, like there's the economic stuff, there's the hunting and how they made tools and things like this. But as you say, you know to a large extent people want to know what did it feel like to be a neanderthal yeah. <laughs> um and first of all i mean i think we should definitely make it clear that um neanderthals are extremely closely related to us they are our closest known relative so like out of um all the animals and, and creatures alive today it's chimpanzees and bonobos that are our closest relations yeah. but neanderthals are way way closer to us than that um you know our last common ancestor with chimpanzees is about five to seven million years ago um with neanderthals it's somewhere around maybe six hundred thousand years ago so much 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 more recent Hmm. um if you look at their bodies so much about their bodies um is really really similar to us there are there are differences all over their skeletons for sure but compared to you know other primates other apes even um they clearly are a kind of human um so just on that basis and the fact that they had very large brains like us um 
clearly extremely um, cognitively complex beings, um, we should expect them to have had really rich emotional lives. You know, um, I do talk about primates um, regularly in the book because they offer us um, such a good lesson in the fact that, yeah, cognition and intelligence and smartness is important, but actually what drives chimpanzees' lives is emotion. You know, they are completely <clears throat> driven by that. And if we think about ourselves, actually we are as well. You know, we might think we're very rational and we do make some rational decisions, but underlying all that is emotion. So Neanderthals, I am absolutely sure, felt the emotion of love. <laughs> um, I don't think that anybody would actually be able to dispute that. You know, they would have felt immensely strong emotional attachments to the close relations that they had, um, just as we do and just as we can see in lots of animals. Um, but, you know, what are the expressions of that that we can see archaeologically? Um, I think one of the areas that has kind of had a renaissance, actually, in how we we think about this is the question of um, burial. What do Neanderthals do with the dead? Um, and this is probably the, one of the, the bits of archaeology that you, you can't really call boring because there's, there's <laughs> always kind of, you know, um, new finds that come up. But it's also extremely challenging to interpret those. Um, and for a long time, in fact, some of the earliest finds of Neanderthal skeletons, so from sort of about 1908, um, was a, a rather complete skeleton from France um, called uh, the Old Man of La Chapelle aux Sons. Um, and that was interpreted from the beginning as a probable burial. So the early prehistorians studying Neanderthals had the assumption that they would have buried their dead, which I find quite interesting. But then over later decades, um, quite rightly, um, researchers became more sceptical and sort of demanded a bit more evidence than just finding a whole body. Um, and so if you come forward to where we are today, um, there's been a really interesting trend of some early discoveries of Neanderthal bodies. Um, as I said at the beginning, you know, we have a lot of different remains of Neanderthals and some that were claimed as burials. Um, are less clear you know they could just be individuals that kind of got lost for example there's one case where um uh, from france where we might be looking at an individual that just fell into a, a cave system through the roof um with you know you see animals <laughs> that happens to animals as well so it's a yeah. pretty nasty end <laughs> um <laughs> but with uh with the case at la chapelle Son, researchers went back to that site and have tried to reassess that you know you've got the skeleton of, of an old man which was kind of half lying on his side um in what was described at the time as a pit um and the guys digging this they were actually um three brothers priests um which is a whole other interesting angle to this that you've got these priests in the early early 20th century really into human evolution <laughs> <laughs> um but they described this as a big pit um so what researchers did was they literally went back to the cave, dug out all the, the trash that was covering um, the, the, the original layer, and they did rediscover the pit. Um, and they did their best to kind of work out, is it a natural pit or is it not? And they couldn't really certainly do that based on, on the geology. They said they probably don't think it's a natural cavity. And it probably was, um, you know, at, at the least sort of enlarged and scraped out by Neanderthals. But what they were able to show there was that the history 
of what happened to that Neanderthal skeleton when it was in the site has to be different to all the animal bones there and also some other bits of other Neanderthals that the original excavators hadn't noticed because they were digging, you know, not especially carefully compared to our standards and, you know, by oil lamps and things like this. Um, So those remains, the animals and the other Neanderthal bits are a different condition to the skeleton. So something happened to that skeleton that meant that it stayed preserved in this pit, not pit feature. So that's kind of the best you can do with old excavations. What you need is nice new excavations that are dug using all the the methods that we we have at our disposal today and our understanding that you have to dig extremely carefully and you know that stories can be held within tiny layers of sediment and things and we do have that so there's a site um that's being worked on at the moment extremely exciting site um in uh kurdistan um part of iraq and um that's called shanidar cave um maybe some listeners might remember a series of books by gene owl from the 1980s and 90s um they were novels um set you know 30,000 years ago talking about humans and neanderthals meeting all this um one of the characters from that is based on one of the skeletons from shanidar kreb he was like a shaman um but you know that's that story but the real shanidar cave is fascinating so this was dug in the 60s um, the remains of um, about nine different Neanderthals were found. Again, they were claimed to be burials. And on the balance of evidence, some of those definitely um, are fairly described as probable burials today. But a new team has gone back to Shanidar in the last few years and they have found a new individual there. And most intriguingly, it's right underneath the remains of at least four others um, in a really, you know, quite um, sort of thin depth of sediment. There's all these different individuals on top of each other. One of them that was found in the 60s was laying on his side and um, was quite impressive. And there was pollen found around this individual and it was claimed maybe it's a it's burial with, with flowers, perhaps. Um, but again, that was like, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But the more recent individual, who they've called Shanidar Z, to differentiate it from the others who had numbers, um, this one, again, is lying on its side. It's only the upper half of the body. Um, and in this case, by applying all these more modern methods um, and looking very carefully at the sediment, they believe, the research team believes that this is an individual that was put in maybe what was a natural sort of erosion channel but that was enlarged and they have found tiny little macro remains of plants in there so this is still ongoing work it's still to be published um, in more detail but this is the best example that we have from any modern site which does seem to support the idea that neanderthals in sometimes in places were depositing the bodies of individuals who had died in a particular way and potentially also including materials with them so perhaps plants Mm. um so you know that's really really quite intriguing in terms of the question of love you know why do you do that the thing about burials is that they they tell you stuff about the individual themselves you can look their skeleton but what happens to the body is telling you about everybody who's still alive in that group and why they do that um so why you would choose to carefully position the body of an individual Neanderthal after they're dead. Um, 
that is instantly giving us something about social um, sort of context, a social understanding of mortality, basically. What mm. does that actually mean for these individuals? Um, and again, you know, if you go back to chimpanzees, and bonobos as a basic as, as a baseline you could say we know that death is really really traumatic for them um they they may not understand it necessarily in the way that we understand it but the the passing of an individual within that group is a huge event for them and affects them enormously emotionally but really intriguingly they are really focused on the bodies um, they don't just walk off um, the focus of the emotion and the processing of what we sh- I think we can call grief um, is always focused on the bodies. And they mm. sometimes actually, especially with mothers and, and very young infants that die, they will carry them around for a while. So for me, I think it, it makes total sense that another kind of human who is, you know, has a brain as complicated in, in many ways as ours, perhaps not all, but in many ways, um, who would have obviously had emotionally rich lives, that there would be a focus on the body when a death happens. I think it makes complete sense. But that doesn't yeah. mean they are always buried because something else that's come out is that maybe sometimes um, they also are taking bodies apart, by which I mean butchering. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe eating. <laughs> yeah. Which is always a way of showing love, isn't it? Well, you know what? I did put this in the book because people people react really badly to this whole thing about cannibalism. Oh, my God, Neanderthals, you know, brutes eating each other. Um, but there is a very distinct thread of this in our own culture um, as well. It's just unrecognised. You know, you've got the whole Catholic mass that the body of Christ is eaten um, and mm-hmm. that is believed, you know, as a literal thing. It's not a metaphor. Um, and then you've also got this weird stuff that, um, people who are drawn to eat the ashes of their loved yeah. ones. There's something about wanting to keep part of the body and merge it with yourself. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I'm sure they're not thinking in those in those specific <laughs> terms, but there is something recognisable there. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Well, it is interesting. Let's talk briefly about 
uh, into breeding. So they're, they are, they're pretty similar to human beings and they're similar enough that they that it was possible to have sex and to have progeny from that sex. So that that makes us, you know, much closer than, you know, if I went out and had sex with a chimp, I could try as hard as I want, but I'm not going to have a half chimp, half human baby. I've, and I've tried. No. But, um, <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> but but I'm joking. Neanderthals and uh, humans were breeding. To, I think you say it, it, it was a not a regular thing from the from the evidence. But do you, do you have any do you have any idea who was instigating the sexual contact and 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 whether it would have been something approved of by either group? <laughs> yeah, I mean this this is such a tricky thing, and uh, you know paleogenomics is has been absolutely crucial to moving us along in understanding the whole question of did we meet neanderthals the answer yes we did and it is the the genetics that has proven that because it was very very difficult to prove that archaeologically um so we know that uh, neanderthals and our ourselves homo sapiens did meet and the picture now is really looking quite um complicated um we're getting uh, the impression that there was interbreeding over quite a long time period so you know maybe before 250,000 years ago um so i'll just actually give a little bit of chronology because it's sort of helpful this so neanderthals emerge within eurasia western eurasia around about sort of 400 to 350,000 years ago um and we are busy emerging within Africa about the same time, actually. And they're there and they do their thing um, through many different phases of climate change until about 40,000 years ago, which is when they disappear. So there's this long span of their existence. And before we had the advent of ancient DNA as a science, um, it was not clear at all um, whether we even ever met Neanderthals because what the archaeology seemed to suggest was that Neanderthals disappear and we turn up about the same time, um, but it wasn't certain, you know, was this real overlap or not? Um, whereas now the picture is showing, first off, Homo sapiens are into Eurasia way before 40,000 years ago. Um, we, we do know that now. But also um, that there was interbreeding, as I said, early, so over 200,000 years ago, and then probably multiple times after about 60,000 years ago. Um, and this may relate to different pulses of dispersal out of Africa by Homo sapiens. So different waves are coming out, encountering Neanderthals and other hominins in Eurasia, because there's other forms closely related, like the Denisovans people might have heard of. Um, but over time, those homo sapiens groups seem actually to go extinct in eurasia um and it's only the very later period where we've got the interbreeding um one of those populations that interbred with neanderthals is what um sort of kept that genetic legacy and and is what we have in in living people today but there were many times before that however saying all that um that makes it sound like everyone is at it everywhere it's not the case um what the impression we get is that when Neanderthals or other hominins met each other, that sex is one normal outcome of that, but that those meetings perhaps didn't happen very often. And certainly 
not often enough and that there isn't, you know, hybridizing at a big enough scale that meant that the differences anatomically between us and Neanderthals would kind of blur. They always looked different and we always looked different to them. Um, mm. So there could never have been like, it, it wasn't like a Borg thing, you know, just <laughs> a complete, you know, taking over and, and um, absorbing of Neanderthals. It's, it's much more piecemeal and complex, although over time that could have had, um, you know, a, a large impact and, and be part of the reasons as to why they're not around. Um, but yeah, like, okay, so sex happened. What does that actually mean? Um, the answer is we don't know. <laughs> um, you know, there are many different scenarios as to how someone ends up having sex with somebody else. Um, it might be consensual. It might not be. I think we can assume both things actually, because, mm the time span and the geographic range over which this was going on was probably quite large. And you're going to be looking at different contexts for this everywhere um, that this is going on. Um, and again, if we look at chimpanzees, they chimpanzees specifically have been drawn on in thinking about relationships between different hominid species for a long time. And chimps are really quite famous for not liking strangers. They're extremely violent um, to different groups. You know, if if they think the numbers are in their favour, they will try and attack and kill um, strangers. Um, there's no evidence of sort of sexual violence that I know between chimpanzee groups, um, but they are, they're quite keen on, on murder if they can get away with it. Um, but bonobos, which are close relations of chimpanzees sometimes called pygmy chimpanzees their society is very different and they are really quite open to friendly relations between different groups um they will hang out with each other and kind of you know just move through the forest for a little while um individuals can move between groups much more easily um there's there's just a lot less you know bonobos are much less stressy about this whole thing and we only have really begun understanding bonobos much more recently. So I think they are just as good a potential model for what's going on with Neanderthals and Homo sapiens as chimpanzees are. Yeah. Um, and one other thing that, you know, bonobos are famous for is that they use sex as a means to de-stress in all sorts of situations. Um, so, you know, perhaps we can we can maybe imagine in some situations that there is an amicable meeting of groups people are curious um and it's all rather nice <laughs> um you know whereas in other situations maybe not um but i think yeah in terms of sort of in terms of like the plumbing side of it um <laughs> Their bodies, you know, their skeletons are really, really similar to ours on a gross anatomical scale. Like I said, you know, if you if you look in detail, there's differences all over their body. Some of them very small. Some of them are obvious, like their faces are different, um, but they're humans. Um, what we can't tell is like, you know, relative size of, of, of tackle or whatever. Um, <laughs> but we do know that uh, Neanderthals didn't have... Um, the gene for penis spines, um, which is this thing that um, some other primates have. <laughs> They're kind of more like just like little nodule things. Um, but um, apparently not having them make sex last longer, therefore it's probably more pleasurable. Okay. So 
if it if it's all good and everyone's friendly and and it's a, it's a nice kind of vibe i think everybody had a good time <laughs> okay well i hope so i think just there was a bloke who, a, a human bloke who couldn't get a girlfriend so he went and shagged a neanderthal uh, that's that's my guess oh but yes that's not fair though because that's assuming that neanderthal women are not attractive <laughs> i think you'd i think it would have been looked down on either both in both directions i'm not saying you know, a, a Neanderthal to another Neanderthal obviously is attractive. Um, oh, I don't know. There are some recent reconstructions that are quite attractive. <laughs> yeah, it's well, we do have we do have the wrong idea. As the book says, I mean, there's loads we could talk about. Um, do you, I mean? Let's quickly discuss why there are no Neanderthals now, except the the little bit of their DNA that survives within us. Uh, is it is it down to to social networking that that because humans were were better, uh, Homo sapiens were better at uh, uh, kind of, you know, being being a social animal and, and making networks and 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 maybe Neanderthals were more in their little tribes and and not mixing around too much. Well, first, I'm going to say everybody always leaves this question to the end in interviews. Yeah. You say just quickly. <laughs> this is like the biggest question about Neanderthals, so there is no just quickly. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean. Just like all of the the aspects to do with how we study Neanderthals, um, as we've got more information and we've got all different methods of, of trying to tackle this question, um, the answers have become more complicated. And I think what we can say is, is that there is not one reason for this, um, why they're <clears throat> not around in physical form, although they are present in our bodies. Um, I think most researchers would probably say it's not just climate. Um, although as you get to that last 10,000 years that they're about between 50 to 40,000 years it's getting colder and sort of the the state of the climate is becoming less predictable it's kind of zigzagging up and down um, in terms of temperature so that's not going to help for sure Mm. Um, but they had survived colder periods before they'd also survived some instability so it can't just be that um on the other hand, um, there is genetic evidence that their population overall, that they're kind of their meta populations, had been shrinking over time. So something's going on which is leading to their populations overall to shrink, which is going to leave you in a more vulnerable position. Um, what we can tell from genetics is also very interesting um, in that when you look at individual Neanderthals, um, although not all of them um, are inbred and in a, in a genetic sense of, of you know, showing um, a mating pool that's very small. Mm. Um, a number of them that we've studied are um, where, you know, the number of, of individuals who are available to mate with, it's like a hundred or less. That's extinction level. That's like rhinos, you know, that's not good news. Um, so for whatever reason, they are in very, some of them are in very isolated populations. And again, that can be bad in terms of sort of the accumulation of of uh, sort of unhelpful genetic mutations over time. Um, but it's also just not good because it means that you haven't got the ability to bounce back if there is a larger crisis that happens. Um, so there's that. But also the other thing that that is sort of a novel event is 
although I said earlier that we have a long history of Homo sapiens, longer history than we used to think of Homo sapiens entering into Eurasia over 100,000 years ago and encountering Neanderthals and things, there is perhaps a culturally different and maybe cognitively different dispersal of Homo sapiens that happens after 60,000 years. And they may have brought with them different kinds of technology, in particular um, projectile weapons. Um, so by that, I mean very lightweight um, spears or darts and perhaps bow and arrow technology. Um, and we don't think Neanderthals had that. Um, so maybe um, that might have meant that hunting was just more successful. You know, you don't have to get close to really very large, dangerous animals. You can shoot them from a distance. It's just safer. There's less risk. Um, maybe more successful. Um, so there's that as well. But also the genetics of these early Homo sapiens people doesn't look like the Neanderthals in terms of um, their social connectedness. They don't look really isolated. They don't look inbred. Somehow, although there is probably just as few of them as there are of Neanderthals, they're able to remain connected to each other as a as a wider metapopulation. And, you know, you have a, a bigger choice of, of breeding partners. How they're doing that is a really interesting question. Are they able to schedule meetings, you know, like say, I'll oh, see you next year at the next spring hunt. Um, and Neanderthals don't do that. Maybe, maybe Neanderthals meet each other more by chance. Um, they could still encounter each other seasonally, but yeah. by accident. So there's all these different elements that come together. But basically, I don't think it's just about the fact that um, I don't think we can argue that we were just cleverer than them. I think there is a lot of different things coming together at a particular point. Um, and for whatever reason, Neanderthal populations presumably just keep shrinking and shrinking and shrinking and shrinking until they disappear while other individual genetic lineages are absorbed into the Homo sapiens people of the time. Although we don't know if like entire groups are actually mixing. So that was yeah. a very not quick answer. Sorry. <laughs> it wasn't, but no, it's, it, well, obviously it's, it's a big question. And, and I suppose you are saying as well that the groups of Homo sapiens also died out. So you're talking about those particular groups that, that didn't lead to anywhere. So it's, there's, there's sort of obviously some chance in it though i suppose in evolutionary terms over a long period of time the sort of luck evens out and it and it becomes about a little bit more yeah than... yeah and i think that's really important for how we think about this whole process and and you know the the lesson of the neanderthals if there is one i think um has also come from this this new understanding that a lot of these early homo sapiens populations just vanished you know, like it wasn't like we just suddenly arrive in Eurasia and it's like, yo, we're here, we're staying. That's us. We're done. No, we we suffered extinctions as well. Um, you know, life was yeah. not easy. And yes, luck is a big part of it. And, you know, you can be really well adapted to a world and stuff, you know, can go dramatically wrong. And it's not because you were rubbish. <laughs> you don't make it like, you know, I say this before, like the the dinosaurs was it their fault that they are not around apart from birds well no they 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 had a, a really hard <laughs> a hard time of it at the end yeah. uh, but they were very good before that so sure well look it's a really fantastic book i love you know the the it's beautifully written it's lyrically written and there's a, a sort of imagined uh 
passages where you you really bring to life what hopefully it might have been like for for the Neanderthals. It's also got great technical stuff in it. When I say the archaeology is boring, I mean to do. It's very interesting to read about. It's absolutely fascinating. <laughs> it's absolutely fascinating to read about. Uh, and you know, it's just sort of incredible how much you brought together, and you know how much we've got wrong about the Neanderthals. You were telling me in by email that the new uh, is it Graham Hancock? Is that his name? Uh, has done the Netflix. <laughs> The Netflix series, which involves the animals, yeah. is, 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 is ancient apocalypse. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he has all sorts of complete, wild, unsupported claims that there was some massive ice age global civilization that taught all the stupid later Neolithic people how to farm and all this stuff, and he's just got no understanding at all of the records. <laughs> um, and yeah, there's no anybody that's watched it. Let me tell you, nonsense. <laughs> Well, I, I'm imagining you worked you worked a bit harder on your book than he did. Although it's quite hard to make things up, that's the thing. So it is it's harder to make things up than it is to see some evidence and work out what happened. So maybe Graham Hancock deserves some credit for his imagination. Well, it'd <laughs> but, be nice if he acknowledged it as fiction, but you know. Well, it sells it sells a lot of books, but this should sell. It's a really brilliant book. I hope people will buy it. I know it's been out for for a couple of years, and and obviously new things have happened as as we've discussed that since then. So uh, there's it, and it feels like in another ten years' time you could write another book which will take us even further. I mean, I kind of do you think there's any chance of you do talk about discovering a sort of a Neanderthal, you know, in the permafrost somewhere? I mean, is there any chance there might be a a secret forest full of Neanderthals that we haven't discovered yet that that, that might still be alive? Um. There's always a chance, you know. Um, but no, I mean, there, there have been more recent finds of, um, you know, incredible things like wolves and even cave lion cubs, astonishingly preserved, you know, just their yeah. tiny little faces. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's possible. Um, and I don't I don't know how I'd feel emotionally about it. It would yeah. be quite strange. Would you, <laughs> would you, what would you say to a Neanderthal if you could talk to a Neanderthal? What would, what would be your first question you would ask a, a living Neanderthal? Oh, Oh my God. Um, I'd like to know, I'd, I'd like to know how they, maybe how they just perceived other animals is really intriguing question to me. Um, right. You know, we have a very odd, very westernized idea of animals as just as resources. But if you look at a lot of traditional indigenous cultures, they see them as, as other beings other relations um so i'd be interested to know that about neanderthals that's very good good um look it's a really great book please do buy it please do read it is there are there any books that you're reading at the moment or that you would like to recommend to our listeners yes i am reading a book right now which is really awesome by jamie green and it's called the possibility of life searching for kinship in the cosmos Mm. um and this is coming out in april in the uk and it's it's an amazing book. It's all about um, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, actually, which has a lot of interesting overlaps with Neanderthal, sort of how we think about other beings. Um, and it's, yeah, it's about how we actually do that. But it's kind of got loads of really awesome stuff about like pop culture, you know, Star Trek, um, all this really cool stuff, Carl Sagan, loads of stuff like that. So I love that. So look out for that. I will look out. That sounds up my street as well. Uh, thank you very much for talking to us, Rebecca. Uh, there's so much more in the book that we could even begin to cover. So do uh, buy the book and, and uh, have a I got the you, you do your own audio book, which you do extremely well. Was that Thank was that you. your choice to do it yourself? Were you, was, was there any it was. pullback no, on you I, doing it? No, I really wanted to do it myself, yeah. um, but it was really difficult. I recorded it during 
June 2020 lockdown. Right. And I had to... <laughs> they sent a studio to my house and I live in the countryside. So we had to edit out hundreds and hundreds of uh, sort of occasions of tractors going past my window and <laughs> lots of swearing and things. So, <laughs> Brilliant. Well, it's a, it's a great way to enjoy it. Uh, and uh buy the book as well I, got, I always do both so you know it's good to have the book and especially with something that's a bit bit more academic it's good to be able to read it yourself as well as uh, listen but it is it is a manageable listen even though there's uh, there's some good detail in there there's some good academic detail thank you very much uh, for joining us Rebecca I'm not sure who's on next week but uh, it'll be fun whoever it is thanks for listening thank you so much 